Can horror movies make us more resilient? Tune in to find out only here on the People's Scientist Podcast. to the People Scientist, the podcast dedicated to helping us optimize our health with the latest scientific findings on neuroscience, physiology, and nutrition. I, your host, Dr. Stephanie Caligiuri, a nutritionist, physiologist, and neuroscientist, will be here with you every single week, bringing us information to ignite our thinking, to help us be one step closer to the healthiest we can be. Hello, my People Scientist Army, and welcome back to the People Scientist Podcast for episode 117, where every episode I try to share some scientific evidence so we can all become a little bit smarter and a little bit healthier with every episode. Happy New Year, my People Scientist Army. How are you doing? How has your day been so far? Thank you for inviting me into your day, and I hope that I can keep you company for the next little bit, and I hope that I can give you some interesting information to ponder. So it is 2022, the third year of me doing this podcast, and I wanted to add a little something fun to every new episode now. I think I want to start off each episode with an interesting old scientific finding, I think some of the most interesting studies are ones done a long time ago. So I'm going to call this section of each episode, Foregone Facts. Foregone meaning something found in the past. So get ready for Foregone Facts. Back in June 1894, scientists were already aware of the uniqueness of our fingerprints. Because of how unique they are, they shortly thereafter began to be used in forensic crime scene investigation. Even identical twins that share the same DNA still have different fingerprints. In fact, in 1894, scientists reported that the chance of two people having identical fingerprints was 1 in 64 trillion. 1 in 64 trillion. So what does that really mean? Well, it is estimated that about 7.7 billion people currently exist on Earth, and about 107 billion people have ever lived on Earth. So chances are, no one on Earth has had identical fingerprints to another person ever. Like, my fingerprints have probably never been on any person on this Earth ever. How cool is that? Something truly unique that likely no one who has ever lived on this earth shares with us. So there's our foregone fact for today. Now let's get into today's episode. Episode 117 marks the first episode of 2022 on the People Scientist podcast. The new year is often a time for us to reflect on our last year and for us to feel optimistic and to plan how we want our next year to go. 
Last year, the first episode of 2021, I did an episode on the neuroscience of goal setting and how we may use neuroscience to our advantage to help us create new habits and to break old habits. Well, this year, I felt like I was seeing too much posting about goal setting and goal making that I didn't want to do another episode on that. But a few of you requested I cover the topic. So what I'm going to do today is somewhat of a compromise. I'm going to start off the episode with some core takeaways of my episodes in the past about how we can use neuroscience to our advantage to start new habits and break old habits. But then I'm going to spend the rest of today's episode on a fun topic I have been wanting to cover. I came across a study that shows the correlation of watching horror movies and shows with greater resilience during the pandemic. I thought that was such a funny and intriguing correlation. Is there any logic behind it? Why might that be the case? So as we always do, let's start off with some core takeaways. I am a firm believer that if we can learn and understand our brain and body better, that this can be very empowering. For example, for us to say, oh, I know why I feel this way. It is because my brain is responding to this, and I know I can get around this feeling by doing this. So in today's episode, that is what I hope to give you. For example, certain brain regions are activated when we form a habit. Whether that habit be bad, like smoking cigarettes or eating junk food, or the habit can be good, like brushing our teeth twice daily or going for a walk every evening. The first step in breaking a habit is to activate our higher order brain regions our logical thinking, planning brain regions. How do we do that? We have to become aware of our habits and question them. For example, why am I doing this? Second step, we are likely to develop some withdrawal if we want to break a habit. For example, withdrawal from quitting smoking or cutting out sugar. So we need to either prevent the activation of those brain regions involved in withdrawal or replace that addictive, unhealthy habit with a healthy, rewarding thing like listening to our favorite music, heat, massage, comedy, exercise, socializing, etc. If our goal is to learn something new, a neuroscience-based tip is to learn it or review it right before bed or before taking a nap, as memory consolidation happens while we sleep. Trying to cut down on junk food but still have cravings? I talk about heat, sour, and bitter taste and how these may be ways to help with those food cravings as well. And I go into further detail in episode 87 too. Now in the second part of today's episode, I talk about how horror movies may act as a safe environment of scenario training, meaning placing ourselves in hypothetical situations to help us regulate our emotions in scary scenarios and to logically think about how we may act in these scenarios. This in itself may confer greater resilience. Now let's get into those details. Let's first talk about breaking an old habit. We know that certain brain regions like portions of our striatum regulate our ability to form automatic habits. We also know that if we want to break a bad habit, then we have to override those habit brain regions. Luckily with neuroscience, we know how to do that. Very simply to override a bad habit, we need to activate our conscious thought and decision-making brain brain regions. Essentially what this means is the first step to breaking a bad habit is to be more mindful of our automatic subconscious actions. 
In fMRI studies, when people thought logically and started planning out their actions, brain regions involved in emotion and habit were less recruited. So what that means is we need to be conscious and logically think about the actions we take for our bad habits. For example, being aware that we seem to crave chocolate in the evening. And that involves us going to the cupboard to grab some chocolate and sitting on the couch while watching TV. Or we are aware that we crave a cigarette with our morning coffee. We are aware that the room, space, or time of day may be triggers or reminders of these habits. But mindfulness most often is not enough because we also have to consider our feeling of withdrawal and craving. And those can be very powerful feelings that lead us to relapse back to our old ways. So we need to consider the regions in our brain that are involved in withdrawal and relapse, like the lateral habenula and the interpeduncular nucleus. So step two is to deal with these withdrawal brain regions being activated, and in order to prevent relapse, we can be willing to feel and accept the withdrawal feelings. This has been referred to as mindfulness-based relapse prevention. This strategy was written by Sarah Bowen and colleagues. She published a clinician's guide to this in a book in 2011. Essentially, this strategy is a meditation strategy that aims to train individuals to be more mindful and conscious of their thoughts, cravings, environment, and their goals, to become comfortable with our feelings of craving, and to learn that that is a part of changing and growing, and that we don't need to respond to these feelings of craving by giving in. A second option to deal with the craving and withdrawal is that we can replace our old habit with a new healthful, rewarding behavior to override these withdrawal brain regions. By rewarding, I mean something that releases dopamine in our brain reward regions that results in a pleasurable response. Many unhealthy and healthy things can do this. For example, nicotine, alcohol, sugar are unhealthy examples. But we can replace these with healthy, rewarding things that release dopamine like exercise, heat like a hot shower or sauna, music, dance, socializing, a massage, caffeine. This can be quite helpful as we may temporarily be in a dopamine deficit if we cut out something like sugar, nicotine, or alcohol. And this can lead us to feeling temporarily having a lower mood. And this has actually been documented quite well in caffeine withdrawal too. I go into detail and provide clinical studies on these examples back in episode 1 and episode 58. So if you want to hear more about how to break an old habit, how to break sugar and food cravings, episode 1 and 58 are really great for that. A third step to override bad habits is to keep in mind our environment, our triggers, our cues that induce our craving. Our withdrawal brain regions are likely to be activated when we are in the same environment where we do our unhealthy habit. For example, if we eat desserts and unhealthy foods in our living room on the couch at 6 p.m. every evening, then being in that room is likely to activate our craving withdrawal brain regions, which can result in us relapsing and going back to our old ways. So how do we get around this? Two ways, avoid that environment for a while or change what that environment means to you. Avoiding the environment is pretty self-explanatory, but let's say you can't avoid the environment. Then okay, change how it looks. I know that that might sound silly, but we have seen this in preclinical studies time and time again. So for example, change the layout of the room, move your couch around, change the colors, like adding a new blanket, a new paint color, face a different direction in the room, add a new scent to the room using a diffuser, put on music, you do something different in that room, like talk on the phone in that room instead, read a book in that room. In preclinical models, if we change what the environment looks like, the conditioned preference, the withdrawal, the relapse for a drug or sugar declines. 
This is called condition place preference training. So to briefly recap, to break an old habit, we need to be aware and conscious of what we are doing in that habit in order to override the habitual centers of the brain. We need to question, why are we doing this? The second step is to deal with the potential withdrawal by becoming comfortable with that feeling or by replacing that feeling with a healthy, rewarding thing and avoiding that environment and the potential triggers. Now, how about starting a new habit? Lally and colleagues in the European Journal of Social Psychology in 2010 investigated habit formation in a clinical trial. The old question of how long does it take to form a new habit? They stated it takes anywhere from 18 to 254 days, with a median of 66 days. So the variation is quite high. So keep in mind that it may take longer than what we might expect in order to form a new healthy habit, and that's okay. The authors noted that if the action was simple, it is more likely to result in a strong habit versus a complex action. So for example, let's say we want to learn a new language. Memorizing five new words of a new language every day while brushing our teeth is more likely to form as a habit very quickly than if we were to choose to approach it by saying we will learn five verbs, five nouns, five questions, and ten statements in a new language every day. So keeping our goal simple in the beginning may be a good idea, and then we can always expand our goal from there. In a review by Amaya and Smith published in 2018 in the journal Current Opinion in Behavioral Sciences, they note that the strength of a habit can be determined by the activity of the brain regions that regulate habitual learning. So one way to further activate these regions is to add on a new habit to a current habit. For example, if someone wants to learn a new language as their goal, what they could do is to attempt to learn five new words every time they brush their teeth in the morning and evening. They brush their teeth twice a day, and that is quite an ingrained habit already. So now they are adding a new habit to that old habit. This makes it easier to attain because their old habit is already so ingrained in their routine and likely already activating these habitual brain regions. How about another example? Let's say our goal is to be healthy, and we want to add in more exercise in order to achieve this goal. So let's say a current habit of ours is to have a cup of coffee or tea every morning. What we can do is add to that habit or routine. For example, we can choose to walk 10 blocks to get our coffee or tea now instead of getting it right at work. Or we can do 10 minutes of stretching while our coffee or tea brews in the morning. Another example, let's say you like to be on your phone when you wake up or before going to bed. How about stretching while being on your phone? That is one quick way of adding new habits to our already ingrained routine. Or if you have a video chat hangout every week with our friends, we can do some exercises during that. Another way to increase the likelihood that a new habit sticks is to add in components that release dopamine in our brain reward regions. Things that are rewarding or release dopamine in our brain reward pathway include caffeine, exercise, music, heat, socializing, and massage, for example. So we can add these things in if possible, like listening to our favorite song or a funny podcast while exercising. Intrinsic motivation, like I've mentioned in episode 87, is also so important because we need to find what is truly important to us and to form our goals around that. For example, I want to be happy and I don't want to feel anxious anymore. That could be our goal. Once we have that goal in mind, we have to use our planning, goal-directed, and decision-making brain regions before that can become an automatic action. 
In this scenario, specific and actionable goals are best. So we don't just say, I need to exercise more in order to be happier and healthier. We need it to be specific and actionable. Our goal could be rephrased to say, I want to stretch every morning for 10 minutes when I wake up. And what is going to motivate us is the fact that we want and deserve to be happy and healthy. And we know that there are a lot of potential ways to achieve that. So to recap, starting a new habit, we should keep it simple at at first. We could add it onto a current habit, like while making our coffee in the morning, and we can add rewarding things to that task, like music and finding what is intrinsically important to us and to form our goal around that. And lastly, if trying to learn something new, we can try to learn or review it right before bed. Now, if you want more details on the neuroscience of goals and habits, you can go back and give episode 87 a listen. I go into all the details and the neuroscience of habits, of healthy eating, trying to break old habits, and also the psychology of motivation and habit formation. So I hope if any of you were interested in hearing any scientific evidence on goal making and resolutions. I hope that this was motivating and insightful for you. And like I said, go back to those previous episodes. Episode one is great and specific about uh, evidence on how to break sugar, sugar cravings and food cravings. And episode 87 really goes into the neuroscience and psychology of habits and goal setting. So I hope that that will be useful for all of you. But now let's talk about today's interest piece topic that I really wanted to talk about. Scrivener in the journal Personality and Individual Differences published a study in 2021 indicating that individuals who enjoy horror movies and shows may have had better mental health and resilience during the pandemic. It's a really interesting correlation, isn't it? How about we dig into that? In this study, 310 people completed this experiment, and they were initially recruited in April 2020 right at the beginning of the pandemic, when there was much uncertainty and fear around COVID. The participants were provided questionnaires on the preference for their movie genres, as well as how they felt about how they were coping with the pandemic. For example, they were given a seven-point scale to score how big of a fan they were of different types of movies, like horror, zombie, pandemic, apocalyptic, psychological thriller, alien invasion, comedy, romance movies, etc., Then the scientists created a questionnaire called the Pandemic Psychological Resilience Scale. Participants were instructed on a seven-point scale, which ranged from strongly disagree to strongly agree, on how much they agreed or disagreed with each of the 13 statements. For example, they were asked if I was mentally prepared for a pandemic like this. Strongly agree or disagree? I was able to predict how bad things would get in a pandemic like this before it took off. The magnitude of the consequences of the pandemic took me by surprise. I already knew which items I should buy in preparation for the pandemic. I never could have imagined a viral outbreak like this. So that's an example of some of the statements that the participants were provided in the questionnaire. They had to either answer strongly agree all the way down to strongly disagree on a seven-point scale. So based on these questionnaires and 310 people, what did the scientists find? Well, being a horror fan was unrelated to positive resilience and preparedness. However, consistent with their prediction, horror fandom was significantly associated with lower psychological distress during the pandemic. Now, they also had called one of the genres a prepper genre, 
meaning zombie apocalyptic and alien invasion genres, where the movies would insinuate a pandemic and people needing to be prepared for that. So fans of these prepper-like genre movies experienced fewer negative disruptions in their life during the pandemic. During the last two years, many new shows have come out about serial killer documentaries, and these shows happen to rank very high for a lot of views and popularity. This is interesting because those individuals that like to watch these serial killer and horror shows sometimes are defined as having morbid curiosity. Well, analyses reveal that morbidly curious individuals seem to experience significantly greater positive resilience during the pandemic. Now, why might that be? Well, it is speculated that individuals with this type of curiosity might look at the pandemic as interesting rather than fearful because of their curiosity about certain situations like this. It certainly might be a combination for most of us that we might feel both curious and fearful, but perhaps we may lean toward curiosity about the pandemic, taking a more logical, thinking, inquisitive approach to it, as opposed to a fearful, emotional response that someone without morbid curiosity might have. Someone without morbid curiosity may hate serial killer documentaries or horror movies because of the fear and disgust they may feel when watching them. As such, perhaps they would also respond similarly to the pandemic. This is an interesting observation. In fact, the scientists wrote that one reason that horror, horror use or horror watching may correlate with less psychological distress is that horror fiction allows its audience to practice grappling with negative emotions in a safe setting. Through fearing the murdering or monster on the screen, audiences have an opportunity to practice emotion regulation skills, experiencing negative emotions in a safe setting, such as during a horror film. It might help individuals hone strategies for dealing with fear and more calmly deal with fear-eliciting situations in real life. So the scientists on this project hypothesize that horror films might create environments for viewers to place themselves in fictional scenarios, to think about how they would respond in these scenarios, and essentially to generate coping strategies. For example, have you ever watched a horror film or show and thought, oh, I would have done this, or oh, I wouldn't have done that, or they should have done this? If we have thought that, that means we took a logical approach, placing ourselves in the situation and thinking about how we would and how we should respond. In fact, this is called scenario training. In the military, they put their officers through many dangerous hypothetical scenarios to see how they would act and to train them in how they should properly react. The goal of scenario training in the military is, one, to desensitize individuals to dangerous or scary scenarios so hopefully they do not freeze or feel shock in the real-life event. Number two, to learn about oneself and how we might respond and three, to train oneself to respond appropriately. So should we all watch horror movies? Should we all place ourselves in these scary scenario trainings, for example? Well, that is up to you. The scientists don't uh, conclude that or suggest that, but what an interesting thought that horror movies act as scenario training for us to give us an opportunity to regulate our emotions to a scary situation, but in a safe environment for us to logically realize that certain scary, dangerous situations are possible. That in itself can be very useful to avoid shock and surprise. It can desensitize us and prevent that shock and surprise. 
And we might be able to also see how others respond in this situation by watching the movie and think how we might and how we should respond. This type of experience might prepare us for real-world situations like scenario training. How cool. So that is a wrap, my people scientist army, episode 117, the first episode of 2022. It was kind of a mishmash of topics today. I talked about how we truly are unique with our fingerprints, that likely no one on this earth ever has had the same fingerprint as us. I talk about the neuroscience of goal making. Go back to episode 87 if that topic interests you. And then I talk about how a study found a correlation with people who are fans of horror films and shows, and how they had better scores for resilience during the pandemic. This may be because horror films create a safe scenario training environment for us. What an interesting thought. What do you think? Do you like watching horror films? Do you feel like perhaps that helped prepare you for the situation in the last two years? I'd love to hear what you think. Now, I don't make any money on the podcast, and I don't take any sponsors for the show. I just do it because I love doing the podcast. So if you really like the show and want to say thank you, you could buy me a coffee to say thanks for the episode, and you can do so via Venmo or Patreon. The info on how to do that is in the description box to this episode. If you by chance want to see some of the papers I mention in each episode, make sure to follow me on social media where I share those and some extra tidbits of information. I'm most active on Instagram, but I'm also on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and TikTok. My handles are in the description box, too. And I hope you all have an awesome week. I look forward to interacting with all of you on social media. I will be back here with another podcast episode in two weeks' time. I think I'm going to stick to a two-week podcast schedule for now. I may change it up and go back to weekly, but I'm working hard to get some grants and papers published this year. So let's see how 2022 goes. I hope your 2022 will start off well for you. See you all soon and bye for now. I am a scientist simply sharing scientific evidence. Some of the clinical interventions I discuss are not appropriate for everyone. Before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle, please do consult the advice of your physician or dietitian. My opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of Mount Sinai Hospital and its affiliates.